0: Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to the first official episode of Fraudology Podcast in February 2021. I don't know about you, but it feels like the new year for this year was like at least six months ago. <laughs> feel like I had the longest January ever. Not complaining. There are seasons in everyone's life. Some are awesome seasons and others are more challenging and That's just the way it is. And if you listened to the last episode a little bit more about what's been going on in my household in January that maybe made it feel like it was so long. Just a quick recap. My child was in a YouTube video for a production company that's local to us about 18 months ago. And it just randomly became resurfaced on TikTok a few weeks ago and became the number one video and in the way that TikTok works from what I understand, the other people kept reposting it because they wanted to go viral or they wanted their video to be number one for about a week there. My poor child, even when she just opened up her own algorithm and she wasn't tagged because nobody knew and knows who she is on that platform, thank goodness, she would see her face. And then there's been crazy things. I mean, one high profile TikToker just this past week animated her Another one did a parody of if she was in House Hunters on HGTV and who she was portrayed as for those 15 minutes is not reflective of who she really is as a person. And so that's been really hard for her that so many people are associating her. The person that they saw for 15 minutes is this person who they think that's who she is all the time. And there were extenuating circumstances for why she wasn't her best self that day. But God forbid any of us have some of our worst like most horrific times captured on video and then last time she even checked which was a few weeks ago the youtube video had gone from three million views within a year and a half to over 15 million views in just a couple weeks or a week and a half i think yeah it went crazy and there was just a lot of support i needed to provide to her as she dealt with that just how invasive it is to have millions of strangers reaching out on different platforms and all that the irony to me is that last January, January 2020, I was actually in San Francisco hosting a merchant-only event in person, which I just, I smile and light up just thinking about. I miss those days. And We had about a 100 trust and safety leaders and professionals attend this event, and it was hosted at Patreon. I think that was publicized, so I'm not giving anyone away. So one of the topics that we had was something that had been requested by a lot of the people attending, which was user-generated content. And in the audience, we had some of, if not the biggest social media companies and marketplaces that allow user generated content. And that's basically people uploading things, right? Whether it's a video or a classified ad or dating or job postings, all of those things. There's a lot that has to be thought about from a policy perspective to keep people safe and to ensure the trust within users without infringing on anyone's first amendment rights in the US or other rights that people have across the world to be able to express themselves and have freedom of expression. So it was just interesting that we were having these conversations about real life consequences with policies or lack of policies on some platforms. And then here, almost exactly a year later, inside my house, I'm feeling those impacts. And that's not to take away. There's a lot of people that have felt those impacts and That doesn't mean that now that I've felt them, now they're real. I mean, they've been real forever, but it's always interesting to me when my professional life and my personal life coincide and not always in a good way. (laughs) And then in addition to all of that, I think I've noticed throughout my life, especially the last several years, that my body tries to tell me when I need to slow down and it sends me messages. And if I don't listen at first, it'll get louder and louder and louder. And usually because I'm stubborn, that's the case. And I had a spider bite of all things back in November. So much that I woke up in the middle of the night. That's the only reason I remember what day it was. It was right before U.S. Thanksgiving. And I felt in the middle of the night, it was like, oh, ouch, but then kept on with my life and i did clean it quite often and without getting too disgusting and gross and graphic about it it would get a little bit better then it would get a lot worse then it would get better then it would get worse and my poor husband had been telling me for weeks please please go to the doctor and this time i used the pandemic as an excuse cuz it's a good one to be fair to him i probably would have used another excuse if that one wasn't readily available i have a thing about going to the doctor, probably because a lot of times when I have to go, it means like surgery or something serious because I waited so long. And so it turned into a staph infection. And only after I was feeling feverish and it was really getting bad, did I decide that, yeah, I probably should consult with a doctor. So thankfully, one of our local health groups has an app that I was able to get on and it's all secure and encrypted and was able to show this poor doctor my foot through the video and she concurred that not only was it a staph infection, it was like a specific kind that's really bad. And then going on antibiotics, I thought no big deal. But the second one that I had to take, because the first one didn't do much, really knocked me on my butt. Those were just two of the underlying things that happened in January that made it feel very long. But there were also some awesome things that happened. And I never want to just harp on the bad stuff. By far, I think the best part of my month of January was hosting the first, and I don't think it'll be the last, fearless female fraud fighter virtual retreat. I probably undersold how big of a deal that was for me. I've owned my own business for six years, but I haven't really felt like a business owner for a long time. And for so long, especially up to the pandemic, I kind of just focused on whatever came to me by word of mouth or whatever projects came, one-on-one projects with companies I would do. And I think I've had some great wins and I've worked with some amazing companies and I'm very grateful for all of those opportunities, but I wanted to start creating my own content and having business offerings. But this scared me so bad. It felt so vulnerable. I have not been great at marketing and sales. If you're a practitioner in fraud prevention, you totally get it within e-commerce and other industries too. Revenue protection is a lot of times the antithesis or enemy or whatever you want to call it of marketing and sales, and so it's just never really been my jam, but also, I think there was just a lot of weird fear around it. My business mentor, Heather Monahan, really challenged me to do something about it, and I have an incredible assistant who was so kind because she really had to figure out some workarounds with website restraints and constraints and other things like that. But we made it happen. And with just a few postings on LinkedIn and one email, we had around 45 women and non-binary people attend this event. Some from even though it was mostly a US friendly time zone time, we had people call in from London, from Brazil, from Europe. It was just amazing. I honestly, when I turned on my Zoom, I, I was like, right on time and people must've been early or whatever. And I opened up the Zoom link. I started crying to see all these amazing faces and half of them I knew really well and the other half I didn't. And so that was even cooler. Like people who I don't know, but who know me trusted me with their time and their money for this event. And it was magical. And this is not to try to rub it into anyone who wasn't able to attend or had FOMO, but Being a female or an other in a space that is primarily white male dominated, a lot of times we can feel like the spaces and the events just aren't for us. Like we try to make sure it is, but we can't always relate. And it can be easy to want to focus on the external factors that make it that way. And that is something that would be super easy for me to talk about all the times that my ideas were stolen or people took credit for my ideas and my information or the times that I've been belittled or harassed, but that's not what this event was about. This event was about, yeah, we've gone through some stuff, but how are we going to not let that impact us? And internally, let's not be our biggest deterrent from being better and from doing more. And this is something that I've just seen in speaking with so many women and non-binary people in our industry over the last year and a half, especially that a lot of times, because it's not an industry that really has a clear-cut career path, a lot of times we limit ourselves and we say, oh, I'm not qualified for that. Do you think that the person that's VP of blah, 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 like somebody came around to them with a magic wand and said, oh, congratulations, you're qualified. I thought so for the longest time, like to be a keynote speaker, to have my own podcast and not have it co-hosted with somebody who had a really awesome epic story and, and great information. I all those things that I wasn't qualified. And I realized, huh, if I feel that way, I bet there's a lot of people and there were. So it was just a great time to be able to focus on that and really focus on what do we want to do? What are our passions? Just one of the activities that I walked people through was the zone of genius activity. And if you haven't read The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, which is no relation to me, I don't have an S at the end of my last name, but I would love to meet him. I highly recommend it, especially if you are feeling like you need a shift or you want a shift. The whole thing with my toe is actually what he would call an upper limit problem. It would take way too long for me to explain all of that, but great book for those of us who maybe know we need to have a shift and a change, but don't know what that is or don't know how. And one of the activities within his book is something that I was walked through at a event that was similar that really helped me. And it's about your zone of genius. And essentially you fold a paper into four quadrants and you write down your zone of incompetence, your zone of competence, your zone of excellence, and your zone of genius. And you can do this for your personal life, for your relationships, for your job, etc. For me, I did it for my job, and it really helped me realize that even though there are things that I can do, that doesn't mean that they're the things that I want to do or that I love to do. And then how can I spend more time doing the things that I love to do? Because let's be honest, when we love something, when it lights us up, we're the best at it. It's not just, oh, do what you want. It's, no, when you do the thing that you're the best at, then You are happy to be there and everyone else is happy to be around you. And obviously, this podcast, speaking at events, facilitating merchant conversations, all of those things are in my zone of genius. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to know that. And so that helped me when I did this exercise a year ago, realizing, oh, I'm only spending like five or 10 percent of my time in my zone of genius And I'm spending the rest of the time in my zone of incompetence, trying to do admin work and reply to emails and set up, you know, this system and that system and the end zone of competence for me might be sending out a LinkedIn post, but that's about it. As far as marketing and sales go zone of excellence are the things that you can do well. And a lot of times you do better than anyone else or, or a lot, most people, but it just doesn't light you up. And the reason why i thought it was you know important to share a little bit of that with you guys on the podcast too outside of it was just one of the cool things that we did during the F4 event but i think the beginning of the year is always a time for people to reflect on what am i doing where am i going what do i want to do and there's just a lot of change in the air within our industry there's a lot more positions being posted there's a lot more need for people in trust and safety and i think our go-to or our instinct is to apply for the things that we can do. Oh, I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. I can do SQL. I can do this. I can do that. But do you absolutely love, do you love working with people? Do you love managing people? Do you love product management, program management, project management? Do you work best as a solo contributor versus a people manager? Do you love the analytics or the operations or the strategy piece? What are the things that you are the best at? And then go find those jobs because I can tell you there are people looking for you. I actually just got an email from a listener who I didn't know yet, but I am looking forward to writing them back. And actually, I have to say they also encouraged me to hop on the microphone because I was just in my head way too much. The last few times I've tried to record this podcast episode over the last few days, I would get three minutes in and then delete. And it was just a slog but they said that they just absolutely love the podcast. And I was like, then, okay, I need to not keep this from them, I guess. I think for me, I get so in my head about, well, am I talking about the right things? Am I doing the right things? Is this what people want to hear about? I don't know. I'm just talking into my microphone. Is anybody listening? And I know from the numbers and the analytics that you are, but are you continuing to listen? Are you interested? I don't know. Sometimes I just get in my head over those things. And a lot of times it's just fear and garbage stuff. But so that email and LinkedIn message actually really helped me go, okay, I need to do this today and get out of my head. But the other part was they had said that they have an open position at their company and it's a great company. I'm familiar with it. So they said, we're currently hiring for a client support associate. It's difficult to find the right candidate as it's a role that requires both direct client contact, strong analytical abilities, and ideally an interest in fraud. And they said, if I don't mind them asking, of course I don't. If anyone comes to my mind, let them know. And they're based in the UK, but can be flexible on location. And so, obviously, if this is screaming to you that this might be in your zone of genius, let me know. But also, I was thinking, I can think of several people that really love customer service and understand fraud, but maybe they don't understand that that's their zone of genius. And maybe if they saw this, they wouldn't know that, that that's the skill set. I would just encourage you, if you're thinking about a new path, to think about not just what you can do. Because that's just a job. But what do you want to do? What are you best at? Because that's then a career. That's a passion. That's the cheesy phrase that we've all heard a million times. If you love what you do, then you never work a day in your life. There's some truth to that. That's why it's said so much. So I'm not trying to be sunshine and rainbows over here. I know that sometimes we need to just take a J-O-B and that's okay. Some of my positions in my past have been, okay, what? I just need a job and I need a paycheck. What can I do for a little while, but then while I'm working on what I want to do, or maybe what your zone of genius is, is drawing or making music or it's something outside of this specific industry. Maybe just doing that 15 minutes a day is going to bring a little more light into your life or an hour a day. I think we just all get into these patterns and these habits and kind of forget that our souls need to be nurtured and that it's okay for us to say, "Eh, I don't really like that, but I love this. Because that's when your employer or your spouse or your children or whatever your relationships are, that's when they're going to get the best of you. And I just think of so many people in this world who have created things that maybe didn't fit the mold at first, but they ended up being amazing. And we couldn't imagine our world without them. I often will use the Beyonce example. She had a lot of imposter syndrome, which is something that a lot of women and minorities suffer with. And of course we do. We've been told for so long of our careers and our lives that we can't do it, or we shouldn't do it, or we're not the right one or whatever it is, or our ideas are stolen. So then we just don't speak up anymore or whatever that is. But she created Sasha Fierce, which is her alter ego. And Sasha Fierce goes out there and dances and just is in her zone of genius. But if Beyonce would have just listened to that voice in her head of, "Eh, I don't think I'm that good or I don't want to, or I'm scared or whatever, we wouldn't have all the amazing music we have. And you can apply that to anyone. You can apply that to Oprah. I mean, Oprah got fired from her job. She totally could have been like, you know what? That's the universe telling me that I shouldn't do anything else. But instead, she went off and created her own incredible talk show that I grew up watching after school and into my adulthood. And Now she's one of the richest people in the world. So see what happens when we follow our passions. I'm stepping off my soapbox now, but that was something I thought would be worth sharing with all of you on the podcast and also just wanted to sincerely thank the people who signed up and trusted me with their time and with their money to attend this first event. I didn't know how it would go. I was nervous. I had several moments where I was like, who am I kidding? I'm not a trade association. I'm not a conference company. I have done these kinds of things for those guys for years, but I've never done this on my own. And gosh, what if it's not good enough or whatever? And I had a money back guarantee that way. I knew that, you know, they knew that they could trust me. And if there was any issues at all, if anyone didn't get what they came for or what they needed, that they could contact me with no judgment. And that's not just because I wanted to avoid chargebacks. It's legitimately because I wanted to bet on myself and let other people feel comfortable doing that as well but just thank you so much to the people who attended. I probably got more out of you being there than even you did, which I know is probably hard to say. Some of the notes I've gotten so far are just incredible of people going for that promotion that they didn't think they really should or were qualified for. Or one person who was asked to be interviewed on their local TV station about fraud scams and That morning, their employee called out. And so they had so much work and they were like, oh, maybe this is the universe telling me I shouldn't do it. But then they remembered that I had said something on that call about how I've turned that around to be the universe testing my resolve and seeing if this is really what I want. Because things don't go easy just because you decide to bet on yourself or just because you decide to go in your zone of genius. That doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. It means that it's going to be worth it in the long run. But you kind of have to pick your pain. Are you going to pick the pain of, the uncomfortability now, but the long-term payoff? Or are you going to pick the pain of the comfortability now and staying the same and staying in where you are and the long-term just stuckness? Stuckness isn't a word, but <laughs> being stuck. And that that is a pain in itself, right? Inaction is still action in a lot of ways. I was really proud that, and I was grateful that they shared that with me, that she was like, nope, I remembered what you said. And I thought, okay, yeah, this could be a really easy excuse. But this also may mean that that's the universe testing me and seeing if I want to do this. And so I'm not going to take this easy way out. I'm not going to take this off ramp and say, oh, employee called out. I've got to work. Nope, instead, I'm going to take this 20 or 30 minutes, talk to my local news station, share scams that are impacting elderly people, especially, and then maybe add on the extra 30 minutes at the end of the day if I need to. And I wrote back and told them if even just one senior citizen doesn't pick up the phone when somebody calls and says, oh, this happened and blah, blah, blah. I just need you to download this app on your phone and then we'll be able to give you a credit. And really, they're taking money off of their bank account. If just one person does that, then it's totally worth that 20 minutes of your time. They were scared and I don't blame them. I get it. But they were almost doing a disservice by even considering not doing it. So I'm just so proud of these people who joined this and there will definitely be more future opportunities to be a part of F4. We are currently in the works of gathering information and feedback from the people that attended and finding out. What works best for them. I had originally thought maybe a monthly membership program where we could all really encourage each other and support each other and have guest experts and a book club and all these other things, but maybe that's not the right way. So we're working on it and I will keep all of you informed. If you do want to be updated on the things that I'm working on, because I am going to be having more opportunities for merchant only events, I am going to be having more content I'm going to be leaning into my zone of genius more this year because one of the ways I'm holding myself accountable is by encouraging other people to follow their zone of genius and then it can't be a hypocrite. So I'm going to be starting to do more of those. I'm still building my email list for my business, but definitely we'll start sending more of those out. So you can sign up at chargelyticsconsulting.com or send an email to my assistant at info at chargelyticsconsulting.com or follow me on LinkedIn. If you connect with me and then also follow, you should be seeing most of my posts. And that's almost always where I'm going to go to, to advertise it for now. So that's all I'm going to say about that. But I just kind of wanted to throw that out, that if you're feeling some FOMO about the F4 retreat or any of the other merchant only events that I have been hosting via Zoom recently, the happy hour, the retailer call, the ticketing and travel call, and there will be others please connect with me and we will get you looped in. Right now, everything but F4 are for merchants only, but trying to figure out a way to co-mingle those and not be so exclusive. Also providing a safe place for companies to share information with each other without feeling like that information will be taken advantage of or exploited in any way. So I am only one person, but I'm doing the best I can to hold this industry together and keep giving you guys opportunities to connect with each other. It's freaking magic. It's just, it's magic for me to see it and it's magic for you guys to participate. So I plan on keep going with my zone of genius, no matter how awkward and uncomfortable I may feel. And I hope you do the same. Okay, let's dive into some questions, shall we? The last few weeks, I have hosted four or five merchant only calls, various verticals and reasons. One was for CMP and Focus week, which I do once a month on a different topic every month. And the others were vertical specific. So for retailers as well as for ticketing and travel and the T and E area. These are calls I've talked about before, the two especially for the verticals, because they started at the beginning of the pandemic and they've since continued and grown and they're highlights of my week. And I don't charge for them. I get so much value out of them, both just fulfillment as well as great content for the podcast and other things. Certainly don't. So if you are in those categories, you can reach out as well. But I plan to do more too. But a lot of great conversations have come out of those. And I want to work with my editor to figure out a way to share some of these with the podcast without identifying. The person or the company. So that is the agreement I've made with everyone on the calls when they're recorded. And I want to continue that agreement as well as just, I think that the real value comes from what's being talked about and not who's saying it. Now, I am sure that solution providers and people in sales would disagree with me on that. But for those of us who want to learn, which I think is a lot of us, that's where the value is. So I'm working on that. But in the meantime. I thought I would just kind of share a few of the things that have been discussed recently on some of those calls. And a lot of them have been around chargebacks, which for anyone who has listened to this podcast or the other, my previous podcast, this is a pet project. I mean, I just absolutely adore chargebacks and that's the nerdiest thing ever. And it makes people uh, question my sanity, but my sense of justice is not isolated for bad guys. And there definitely is a lot of unfair Rules within the chargeback rules, as well as just a lot of confusion. And I have a really good track record of saving large companies millions and millions of dollars by going in and either creating their chargeback process or repositioning it, et cetera, et cetera. Also, have the rules and regulations memorized, which was a side effect of my very first job in the industry. And I just kind of file the updates in there and it's almost rebooting your computer when you when you have updates. <laughs> so, anyway, I get lots of text messages and calls with so many random questions about chargebacks and I'm always happy to, you know, answer the one-offs and discuss an engagement for further projects, but so one of the big topics of conversation on one of these calls was arbitrations and there was a very large company asking, should we even be looking at this? Is this something that we should consider. And for people who don't understand arbitrations or don't really know the term or have heard different things, just kind of a level set. So chargebacks have a few different processes. When the cardholder contacts the issuing bank, the issuing bank provides a chargeback notification to the acquirer or your merchant processor, your ISO, your PSP, etc., whatever that payment relationship is that you have. And a lot of them will look and see if a refund's already been made on that token or kind of some cursory things like timing and if it's still within the time limit, et cetera. And then they'll pass it on to you. And usually they're debiting your account in tandem of notifying you. And that's because a lot of times, smaller companies, especially if they know a debit's coming, they may make sure that there's not money in there. So that is the process of most of them. So you get 14 to 21 days to respond depending on your processor and depending on the card brand and what system you're using. And I could get really granular, but I'm trying not to. And if you respond to that chargeback and your processor looks at it and feels like it meets the requirements per the reason code that was selected by the bank, which FYI, there is no accountability on reason codes, no matter how many times I chased people from card brands down halls at conferences and or brought this up in closed door meetings with them. And I know that doesn't matter as much to these guys as it does to us. But I really do think that accountability on a reason codes would help a lot of different parts of this process. But that's why you see a lot of fraud reason code chargebacks applied to things that aren't really fraud, because that's the easiest one for issuers to file, which is a whole other, I don't want to say rant, but it's a whole other thing I could go down in tangent, I could go down, but that's not, you know, for the sake of time and wanting to address a few of these questions not going to get into that any more than that. So if your processor feels like your response has met the basic requirements of that reason code, then they pass it on to the issuing bank. And a lot of times when your processor makes that determination, you get a first time win. You get the money back into your account. And because there's an action that happened in the processor side, you get a notification that you won the first time chargeback. But that doesn't mean that that's all said and done because the issuer then gets to see it and they get to see what information you've provided and decide if they think that it is more compelling than what the cardholder said, or if it meets the requirements of that reason code more than what they have, et cetera, et cetera. And each bank makes those decisions in different ways. And it really does depend on how you're responding. And I've definitely found that, I mean, this is just a fact that the chargeback process is very subjective whether you win or lose is very subjective. So what you're providing, how you're providing it, and what you're saying does really matter. And I've done a lot of A-B testing, a lot of trial and error to come up with what I consider or or sometimes call my magic templates. That's because a few of my clients have called them that. One in particular, and then I just kind of started calling them that. Yeah, but they're not magic. They are (laughs) based on over 10 years of trial and error with lots of different types of companies and verbiage, et cetera. But I've seen some other, There are a very select number of chargeback companies that I think are also representing it in the best light and have the best win rates. But that's as far as I will go on that topic. There are some that really don't do a good job. So anyway, say that the issuer says, eh, we still believe our card holder. That will come back and you'll get a second time chargeback and your account debited for a final time. So within that process, The only thing that the merchant can do within the chargeback process is pursue arbitration. Traditionally, merchants have been advised not to go forward with arbitration. There is generally a fee that's associated with it. So it really depends on the processor. I've heard anywhere from $500 to $1,000 each time. There is a standard amount that Visa and MasterCard charge, but sometimes there's a little bit of an upcharge there. So the loser has to pay that fee. Also, it takes time on your processor side and all that. So if they needed to add a fee, that that's probably why to cover their time. The whole process of arbitration is it's being reviewed by a third party that is completely neutral. A lot of times, or I think always it's at the card brand. And this is primarily for Visa and MasterCard. This is the analogy I use because I haven't come up with a better one. But essentially, the chargeback process itself with the first time, the second time, etc., that's kind of like an intramural pickup basketball game. So if you are playing a basketball game or seeing people play basketball in a park or at a gym, a lot of times it's because they both kind of know the general rules around what a foul is and how points can be made and the lines on the court, etc. But if somebody falls down... Then, obviously, the person who fell is going to say, ah, "I was fouled," and a lot of times the person who is still standing is, "No, I barely touched you." so that's kind of the back and forth between the first time, second time chargeback. If you as a merchant are like, "No, I had a lot of compelling evidence. this is a lot of money, no matter what the fact is, whether you have a small profit margin and it was a really high dollar amount, which I've had many clients who might make five dollars on the transaction, but the amount of the chargeback is $5,000 because they're a marketplace or online bill pay or other things like that. Or travel too. There's a lot of those. You may want to pursue it. And using this basketball analogy, arbitration is similar to having a referee come in and review the tape. And really, they don't have skin in the game, so to speak. So they're looking at it from a high level. However, they do have SLAs. They do have many that they have to go through. It is taxing, etc. They have to look at both sides and everything. So that's why the loser has to pay the fee because otherwise this process would be taken advantage of quite a bit. It does require you to be a little selective. I think up until maybe four or five years ago when I had a specific client, I was kind of on board with the same advice that you hear a lot of people say. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I had a client who was in this bucket of really small profit margin, but very large risk. They were responsible for the full amount. And they asked about arbitration and I told them my thoughts. But I said, if you're open to it, we could certainly try it. I could help you create a template that is going to put your best foot forward. Now, one common misunderstanding is a lot of people say that, or a lot of people are under the impression that you need to have new evidence in order to go to arbitration. That's actually not the case. I think that that was something that was said for years and years, a long time ago. and But that's not the case. In fact, actually, some processors require you not to have new information. Some people say, was it a better philosophy to hold back some information for the first time so that we can push to arbitration? No, put your best foot forward first. And then if you feel strongly that your evidence was compelling, and for lots of reasons, it can be by dollar amount, it can be by reason code, different companies can create different thresholds, give it a try. Because what happened with this specific client is they ended up winning a lot more than they lost. So there was a net positive, which meant that they built that into their process. They definitely learned a few things about specific issuing banks that they just wouldn't pursue in arbitration or dollar thresholds, et cetera. But sometimes you're not going to know until you try. All of that said, It is a decision that you have to make as a company as well as in tandem with your processor because there are some processors who really don't like it or don't understand it. I really am fairly disappointed with a lot of the bigger processors who don't have people that know much about chargebacks on staff or really, I mean, their head of chargebacks is asking me simple questions and I'm like, wait a second, what? Which, I mean, that's fine, but I think that that's a symptom of a better, I'm not saying I'm complaining about people asking me questions. I'm saying it's a symptom of a bigger problem where processors underestimate the importance of chargebacks to their merchants. And a lot of times merchants think, okay, the only person I can ask is my processor because they've got to know and they don't know. So that's the frustrating thing. But definitely talk to your processor first about it to make sure that they will support you in those arbitrations and to understand the fee and the obligations, et cetera. The other thing I would say is that there are some alternative payment methods that do not allow arbitration. I had a merchant reach out to me. They were a smaller business. They were actually referred to me by someone a few weeks ago who was in the travel space. And there was a very large dollar trip booked for March of 2020. And obviously, it had to get pushed out to March 2021, which they thought just like the rest of us did about, oh, this pandemic thing is going to totally go be a, gone in a year and they'll 100% get to travel internationally by then. Didn't happen. So it had to get pushed again. And this was all within the merchants policies. And the cardholder knew that they understood the policies because they had rescheduled the first time. They also admitted to knowing the policy in an email, but said, I lost my job at the money back, blah, blah, blah. The merchant explained, we've already paid for this trip on your behalf, so we can't give back the money. Here's what you agreed to, blah, blah, blah. We really do want you to go on this. Here's what we can do, etc. The cardholder contacted their bank. Their bank pursued a chargeback. The merchant responded, and it was found in their favor, but then... The cardholder pushed back. It was found in the favor when the processor said it first, and then when the cardholders bank saw it and they pushed back because it was a significant amount of money. It was a very large dollar purchase. It was a luxury vacation. Unfortunately for this merchant, because they used a specific payment method as their payment processor, they were not able to... Request arbitration and they spent hours and hours on the phone trying to get the answer because if it was internally within the payment processor, there could be more back and forth. But because the cardholder called their credit card company first, it was external. And so there was policy, and this payment provider doesn't provide arbitration. Now, when I reached out to them, they didn't realize that other processors did offer arbitration. So I am in the midst of having that conversation with them. And actually, using this as an example is reminding me that I need to check back in. But uh, yeah, definitely contact your processor and understand that who you process with, even though it's convenient, may not be the best for down the line if it gets that worst case scenario. So, really, when we were having this conversation with on my merchant only call, that was what I had provided, and it seemed to be really helpful. And one of the company that had asked had said that was kind of what they were thinking, but it was helpful to understand. How it works and what the benefits and the disadvantages are, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to do a pilot program, and I'm really interested to know how that goes. But I do think it's important to know that that as a resource, as you are looking at your chargebacks and looking at wanting to make improvements on the revenue that you are able to help your company retain. This is definitely a lever that can be an option. I, you know, certainly wouldn't do it for a $50 transaction, but. Anytime the transaction amount is bigger than the fee of arbitration, it may be worth it. The other thing to consider, and this is what I told this merchant that was kind of SOL with their payment processor because it was an alternative processor with payments, etc. They have a wallet component, so that makes them have their own internal rules. There are options for you outside of the chargeback process if you lose a chargeback, whether that's lost it to a second time or aren't able to do arbitration or went through arbitration, but still wasn't found in your favor, which it really is true that sometimes neutral third party is going to find in your favor more so than because obviously the issuing bank knows that they have the last say. So sometimes they'll just find it in their own favor, thinking that you're not going to arbitrate. But the other piece is, and this was something we talked about a lot with the merchants too, is issuing banks are looking at your records, right? And so if they see that you pursue arbitrations, they may not push back on that second time chargeback because it's not worth it for them either. It's a cost benefit analysis on their end. So that is also a reason for the strategy. And I would start out small. I wouldn't arbitrate hundreds of transactions a month. I would start with a few select ones and go from there. But here's what I was going to say. Outside of the chargeback process, you do have options. That is something that a lot of companies don't really fully understand. But this is something I put in place when I created the Friendly Fraud process for one of the largest online travel agencies in the world 10 years ago now, and the whole process is still in place, saving them millions a year. So yes, I kick myself when I think about it that I didn't negotiate a percentage on that, but it was a straight full-time commitment for a project for 12 months or 11 months, 10 or 11 months. It was just under a year. I didn't get that option, but That is beside the point. One of the aspects I put in was sending merchants to collections if they won on a friendly fraud chargeback. Now, this was right when consumers were starting to use the chargeback process and game it so that they could get things for free, like free trips because of the recession. And so I implemented that not as much as a tactic to get money back, though we did recover money. It was also as a way to advise them that, hey, we know what you did. We understand that you got your money back, but we're not going to approve it again. Or just basically you're busted, right? There's some solace that happens in anonymity online that sometimes allows consumers to do bad behavior, whether it's content, user-generated content that they're uploading or issuing a chargeback. And a lot of times, especially back then, cardholders didn't realize that that money was coming from their e-commerce company or from the e-commerce company directly. They just thought it was their bank being nice. And oh, by the way, the issuing banks that have done price adjustments in the past, they've advertised, hey, if you see this item for cheaper at that specific merchant later, we'll give you a credit. That actually turns into a chargeback too on the merchant side. And I know of a few situations where people have lost a lot of digital collateral with video games and et cetera, because they were just trying to cash in on the $5 $5 price difference but it came through to the merchant as a fraud chargeback so they lost their whole account so the bank ends up looking like the hero but really we know that it's the or the merchants who are usually ending up having to pay that bill so sending a letter from a collection agency can deter that and it did in this process this was like the final step of the process there were a lot of other components of it but it did provide a lot of value and we also saw In turn, we saw the number of chargebacks coming in and repeat offenders go significantly down as well. Additionally, if it's a really large dollar amount or if you feel like you are in line with other creditors for this specific consumer or there could be other extenuating circumstances, another option is to civilly sue them. This is the nuclear option in my perspective. It is something that I have done in my career a few times. There were very select situations where we tried every other thing possible. And it was specifically when I worked for the rental company. So people had $30,000, $40,000 worth of merchandise that they just weren't returning and didn't have money to pay the rental fees. And in the cases that we ended up taking to civil court, I had called them and just begged and said, please just send the stuff back. I will waive all of the fees. I just want the stuff back. And it was frustrating, to say the least, when I would have somebody cry and say, but my friends have seen me with this brand name bag and these brand name sunglasses. And I don't want them to know that we're in a lot of financial difficulties and our house is in foreclosure and blah, 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 blah. Like, just send me my stuff back so we can make a profit on it. It's not like I was going out there suing people for fun. It wasn't fun at all, but we did end up with wages garnished and liens on houses. So it's not something that I recommend all the time. I don't think it's even considered a best practice in my mind, but there are alternatives. So if you're in a meeting with senior leadership and they're asking, what else can we do? Or are there other ways to discourage this behavior if they're taking advantage of things? Or are there ways to recuperate our money? Those are the ways. I do have a I shouldn't say a favorite collection agency, but there is one that I think is better than the rest, especially for e-commerce companies that I'm happy to provide as needed if this is something that is of interest to you. Same with lawyers, the lawyer I worked with on those I still work with as my business attorney. I just absolutely adore him and his paralegal. But they are really good at this and have done this before specific to chargebacks. Obviously, you have to verify that the cardholder was the one that took place in the transaction. You would never, ever, ever want to civilly sue a victim of credit card fraud or identity theft. I feel like I just that's not necessarily for covering my own butt, but I just really feel like I needed to say that. Okay, so I was going to talk about a few other things, but look at us and almost getting up to the hour. What I am going to say is I, in the spirit of me pursuing more projects in my Zog, as my husband calls it, my zone of genius, I am putting together an online training course about chargebacks, best practices, et cetera. I've been providing training to private clients on this topic, and it's been extremely helpful to them. And... It really gives the baseline information that every merchant should know whether you are outsourcing your chargebacks to a third party or not. It's still very important that you understand the process so that you're able to audit your reporting and know how to calculate the metrics and just understand the performance of your provider as well as being able to explain it to your business. It's also a great way to train your team on it. Anyway, I'm still formulating what's going to be constituted in that and then how I'm going to break it up. So would love to hear what you would most love to have in chargeback training. I think we're going to have a basic and an advanced or something like that. Or maybe I'm going to break it up into if you outsource your chargebacks versus you do it internally. I'm not 100% sure. So any feedback on, oh my gosh, I hope she talks about X in chargebacks, please let me know. Sometimes the most challenging thing for me is just to know I don't always know what people don't know. I guess we don't always know what we don't know because there's so much information out there. But yeah, if you heard me say I'm going to be doing chargeback training and you got really excited and hoped that I include X or Y, shoot me a note on LinkedIn or via my assistant at info at chargeliticsconsulting.com. We always love to hear from you. Also, if you have a topic or a question that you hope to hear on this podcast, I would love to hear from you as well. On that note, I really appreciate you listening to this podcast as always, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you again next week.